Resonant Zones is a podcast about echoes and pulsations between people, ideas, and artifacts, hosted by Adam Wetterhunt. For more information about Adam's work, teaching, and philosophy, visit Adam's blog, asatkora.com, spelled A-S-A-T-K-H-O-R-A.com. Welcome to Resonant Zones. My guest today is Charlie Martineau, a friend who I've never met in person, but have been corresponding with for over 15 years. Charlie and I met in a chat room discussing extreme electronic music when we were both just teenagers beginning to make our own music, and I had the pleasure of hearing some of his earliest recordings, including a cover of Hamburger Lady by Throbbing Gristle. These days, Charlie is an avid musician, visual artist, and practitioner of occult arts, passions which he combines in his textural, ambient, and experimental tape and synthesizer music as Esperic Glare. Today we discuss the intersections of ritual and sound, of divination and art, through the use of magic squares as synthesizer talismans. We breeze through a quick history of occult lineages in the 20th century, from Aleister Crowley to Austin Osmond Spare to Kenneth Grant and Michael Bertio, and comb our way through our own shared interests in industrial music and the scene known as England's Hidden Reverse. Charlie utilizes electronic media to open horizons of Gnostic channeling, where the very vibrations of sound rupture and change the world around you. A Nightshade Psychedelia. Check out his recent releases on his Bandcamp website, espericglare.bandcamp.com, including Horn Scraping Towers, Velvet Colonies, and My Nights Are More Beautiful Than Your Days, Part 2. My hope is that this episode highlights for you the usefulness of noise for training the ear to become a receptive, non-dual listener. All of the music from here on out in this episode is composed by Charlie, so open up your ears, crank up your speakers or headphones, and welcome to The Zone. the old internet it was it was interesting and like you were saying like it was like a dungeon crawl you would you know you'd end up in uh you'd end up on this forum about this but there'd be 
like some dudes who were into something else and they would talk about that and you'd want to check that out, you know, and you wouldn't like everything, but it was like a pretty good way to expand, you know, there's absolutely, there's a lot of music I listen to. And, uh, I have some friends that are a couple years younger than me, uh, like a few people that I still am pretty good friends with that I kind of grew up with. And one that moved here a little while after me, that's like three, four years younger than me. And, you know, a few times he's asked me, you know, like, how did you, you know, living in fucking Wyoming, how did you get into this music? I'm like, well, I use the internet and, you know, I listened to Skinny Puppy and then I found out about Throbbing Gristle and early mm-hmm. SDK. And then you've got a record label that released nothing but, you know, weird noise stuff. And right. you just go down these rabbit holes and more and more and more stuff comes up. I'm so glad you said rabbit hole because that was the image that was also popping into my mind. And yeah, there was this sort of ecstasy of like, you know, I was using the early and I know I'm sure you were also like various P2P softwares to share music with friends. And, um, you know, it'd be like somebody would recommend a, a book or a movie or some weird kind of artistic statement. And you would just you're just kind of like following leads And like you said, I found out about a lot of stuff that didn't mean anything in my life ultimately, but I found things that changed my life completely during that time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 uh, it's, I mean, I think you can still find that today. It's just different channels, you know, and it's, uh, our griping about the old ages, you know, people older than us can take it a step further. And, you know, you used to not have the internet, like, Right. You know, I, all the shows I find and stuff, you know, you used to have to subscribe to magazines, watch the papers. Like, yeah, I don't follow like a bunch of jazz pages in Portland. Like if I didn't have a little bit of sleuthing, like, you know, I, last year I went and saw Pharaoh Sanders, but if I was just living in the eighties, not reading jazz periodicals, I wouldn't have even known he was playing two hours away from me, you know? Exactly. And that's where, you know, a lot of the music that had such a formative influence on both of us, um, you know, there was the whole tape trading scene and uh, the nurse with wound list, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was like people did what they had to do to to create kind of a a nexus of of weird, interesting art. Um, And now it's almost like the Internet feels and here I'm sounding like an old man again, but it feels so flattened out and kind of like turned into this Hades like very smooth surface. That's like hard to find the cracks in which you would um, be surprised by art anymore uh, via the Internet. Now, artists themselves are producing amazing work and a lot of your stuff is shared on the Bandcamp format. Uh, Is that the primary way you share your music? Yeah, once once in a while I'll throw if it's just like a song I want a few people to be able to hear, I'll throw stuff up on SoundCloud. But uh, but yeah, I prefer Bandcamp. I think it's in the world we live in where the way music's become, I I think it's about the best platform there is. It's versatile. If you can just put stuff up for streaming if you want. And I mean, you're not making anything off streaming anyways. So if you want to just make it stream so people can hear it, you can do that. But they allow you to sell stuff or you can either do set prices or pay what you want. 
and they give you a significant amount. Of the, they don't take that much. I don't remember exact figures, you know, but sure. it's it's rather fair compared to you know the Spotify market oh, yeah. and stuff. And uh, I I think that you know they're pretty good. Um, and I know if you do physical stuff through them, they wait to take their share until you have digital sales. So that way you're not losing money on physical products. Oh, so, I mean, that's cool. I think it's pretty good to artists. It makes it where anyone, you know, you can throw something up and people can hear it. Yeah. Um, before we talk about maybe your few recent releases uh, that I've been listening to, I'd love to hear about the origin of Esperate Glare and just uh, anything you're willing to share about why you started the project and uh, what what was on your mind and on your on your heart when the exploration began? Well, for me, I had always I had always liked music since I was pretty young. Um, unfor- I should have been smart and pushed to get a mu- musical education so I could uh, you know utilize it more. But perhaps because I didn't have that, I started getting into the to more and more like less musical stuff. It kind of had a, from the time I was pretty young, I don't know how, how much I should reveal, but like I can remember like the initial tree was when I was like pretty young, like third grade. It was like, I listened to Romstein. Then I got a little older and I was like, Hey, there's this band KMFDM. Hey, they're on wax tracks boom there's all that and then like a little after that it was skinny puppy and that it's still dancey and rhythmic but it's a little more step out there and it's just like further steps out into the ocean you know starting at the shore and just stuff getting weirder and weirder (laughs) but so i got into stuff like that and then after a while i was like well i have access to computers i could mess around and you know try to make music too and in that early era of the internet, there was a lot of really interesting software flying around, like really crazy software to play with early on. Yeah. 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 And it was, it was uh, easy to get a hold of. You know, uh, back then I didn't have a lot of money. But if you look at, you know, because we don't have incomes when we're kids, but, uh, but when you look at the prices of stuff in comparison, we all had a computer, you know, and, it may not run it perfectly, but you could you could run a lot of stuff on a computer back then and do some pretty impressive stuff, you know, where in, in the 80s or early 90s, you know, you had to buy a 500 to a couple thousand dollar synthesizers, you know, and I know mm-hmm. people who did it and were able to figure it out, but, yeah. you know, I might have been less uh, inclined to uh, get, have such an open start if I wouldn't have lived when I did. So what do you think were some of the important musical influences when you were just starting out? You mentioned kind of your walk from the shore into the sea, um, but who were the artists who were really weighing on your mind when you started first recording? I think when I first started recording, stuff like Skinny Puppy was really strong because that was like old stuff was when I still thought you had to like have a beat. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's the kick drum, the snare and stuff. Like, even if I was going to do weird shit, it was still going to have that, you know, the one, two, three, even if it wasn't, you know, super elaborate or something. And then at that point, too, you know, I still thought uh, 
that you needed to be like a band or, you know, have a name for something. Because if I were, if I would have started what I was doing later, honestly, I probably would have just used my name, you know, but, but when I was young, it's like, no, it's got to be a band. Like, it's not cool to use your name. Like, no one knows who the fuck Charlie Martino is. Like, it's got to be a band name. And maybe right. down the road, I'll get other people <laughs> in it, you know? And, and we'll make these amazing albums and we'll, like, tour and da-da-da, right. you know? So you got to oh, yeah. be ambitious at the start, you know? I think that that fantasy is important because it kind of gets you off your ass to create. Um yeah. So what uh, what does the name mean to you? You know, honestly, anymore, I don't I don't really have too much attachment to it. It's just something I've always had. Just mostly anymore, it just kind of has the feeling of like an eye, a very strong presence of an eye, sort of the properties of that in relation to maybe like consciousness and stuff, you know? Sure. of what the music's transmitting anymore. Kind of my version of the all-seeing eye, but less insidious, hopefully. I was going to say, um, my wife and I have been watching through, as part of our work-from-home quarantine, all of the extended versions of the uh, Lord of the Rings films. And, you know, S- Sauron is that big, giant eye, right? And it, it's evil in that case, or or at least associated with evil, but I, I don't think that the, the image of a giant eye necessarily has to be negative. But the, right. the tone of your music has always had to my ears. There is um, at times and a quite unsettling quality as well. Not necessarily evil, but unsettling. Yeah. Well, that's something I find more and more interesting as time goes on, too, because non-dualism, I feel like, is kind of a key thing, you know. Uh, it's it's so simplistic to be completely focused on good and bad. And I don't think that they don't exist, you know, and I strive to do what I consider good things. But as far as like cosmic forces go or whatever, the energies that work through us and stuff, it's not always cut and dry, black and white, especially, you know, quote, higher things, you know, it's it's a bit beyond our comprehension. And it's not always categorized so easily. You know? That's beautifully said. And I, I actually think with both of us having roots in the industrial scene, our aesthetic experiences of noise sort of prepare us for that. That beauty um, or goodness or whatever is not necessarily to be found in what society considers to be beautiful or good. Um, like to me, yeah. static can be beautiful you know, purposed correctly. Yeah, well, people have such strong notions of what's musical. Exactly. They, you know, they have to have the instruments and stuff, but you can hear wonderful music that's, you know, made from noises or weird stuff. Oh, yeah. There There was a period in my career where I got really into found sound, and I would just be walking around with a recorder at all times, and I was really into the resonance of just random machinery. So like, I, you know, I'd be going through parking garages and stuff like that on the bad side of town, you know, looking for the light that was vibrating just so next to the air vent vibrating just so, you know, try to position the microphone just between them and just be like, that's the song. It's just the light and the 
air vent, you know, and I've sort of left that era behind in my own creation, but it, it always left behind a sense that even kind of ugly leftover unpurposeful sound actually has deep, powerful resonances and currents within it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, if you even just want to break it down to like tonality qualities and stuff, you can get some really tremendous sounds from all sorts of stuff. What you were just talking about, though, with industrial or the modern sound stuff, I think uh, as far as like uh, film and uh, television sense, I think David Lynch really uses some of that stuff well, too. Like, you know, back to Eraserhead or some of the dark stuff in Twin Peaks. Like, I think that's like a like an apex of the extremities of that stuff, you know, like when it comes through and it's very strong, you know, you can, it, it is, it can be very menacing, but you know, when you're passing it by, it doesn't always seem that intense until you stop and listen. And in, in his work, sound almost seems like a character or a force uh, in the aesthetic production in a way that I think does call attention to background noise in everyday life. noticed that you've recently released a new record on Bandcamp just a few days ago. My nights are more beautiful than your days. And it looks like this is part two. Can you tell me anything about this release? Yeah. It's stuff I've been working on for a long time, about 10 years. And I've finished other stuff, but I sort of, I was, I go through phases where I'll really, really work on something for a long, long time. And put a lot into it and I was kind of doing it with some of those songs and I ended up with about half an album over the course of a few years and I sort of went and did other stuff finished that and it came a point where I was like I've had this stuff sitting here forever and a few of the tracks I really like It's got a really consistent vibe, and it really drew me in. Uh, I listened on headphones today uh, for the first time since you put it out, and it was even more immersive um, in that experience. I am planning to play a little bit of the song Perfect Sphere into the podcast. Can you give listeners maybe a little context about that track? Yeah, um, I did the stuff for that uh, on my own, and it was a pretty... 
a pretty long track and I liked a lot of the textures, but it was either something I was going to have to kind of shorten or fill out. I have this friend that is originally from the UK uh, and he does some mastering work for me sometimes. He, uh, he mastered the EP I did with Tactile probably five plus years ago. And he's really good at that. He does, uh, he's, he's a pro. He does it at home and everything, but he's got very good equipment. He's done stuff for a lot of people. But his name is uh, Greg Janman, and he, uh, he does Hermitech Mastering. I know he's done, uh, he did uh, the Nine Inch Nails Coil, the I forget what the name of the set was. The recoil, yeah. yeah. He he mastered that. Wow. He does a lot of stuff for people. He might have done one of the backwards that came out, the one that the New Orleans one. But Greg's work is really great. I've had him do several of my projects. I can. Uh, he did the tactile one, and he did my collaboration with Harper Kratt. He mastered that as well. But with that, he uh, he contributed. He did the spoken stuff. He did some of the additional like synth playing and textures in that song. After this brief resume, we may once again turn our thoughts to the main results of our researches as summed up on the dodecahedron within the perfect sphere.
it's a very um, interesting and uh, disquiet atmosphere that's created there. And it's interesting, his vocals um, have a very powerful, almost shamanic quality, but he's delivering them in a almost ASMR whisper. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked how it turned out, We, which is from the writings of Fratter Akkad, the magical son of Aleister Crowley. Off the top of my head, it, it might be from QBL, The Bride's Reception. I'm not completely positive, but I, th- I think it's in that. And uh, it's a Kabbalistic text. And the first section is really good, just no nonsense, like has a lot of Kabbalistic information. And then the second section was what pissed off Crowley because he decided he was going to rearrange the Sephirah and the paths via the tarot cards. And Hmm. uh, Crowley wasn't too happy about that. It's interesting how quick that uh, tarot to uh, Kabbalistic paths on the Tree of Life thing became a dogma. You know, I, I can't find any attestation of that before Eliphas Levi. And yet, yeah. you know, everybody treats it like it's got to be set in stone. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's real interesting. Like, Levi talked about it. And then I from there, I think what brought it to everyone was the Golden Dawn stuff. Yeah. And the, and, the weight, uh, the Rider weight Tarot and the other yeah, forms. Yeah, and even, even Crowley changed two of them. Remember, I'm not going to pretend that. I think he flipped, well, he flipped, um, oh, justice and strength, I think. Because it was, he had this whole thing about how Leo and Libra are like a, are a nexus that is, um, like the two signs should actually be flipped on the, on the astrological chart or something like that. It was like a very oh, right. yeah. interesting and also idiosyncratic move by Crowley, uh, who's such a, a fascinating figure anyway um yeah well and that that's what's interesting with all that too is because that was sort of the beginning of the modern era stuff and now people you know it's much more free than it used to be and you know he's a big part of that but he he was often very dogmatic in his stuff too and he would sort of he would change stuff and then people would also go from him and change stuff and but he wanted it kind of to stay within his grasp and his control yeah it's in that in that era because it's like it's not really postmodern yet even though figures like crowley and nietzsche and heidegger and um, many others besides uh at that time were sort of anticipating postmodern they weren't really postmodern yet. So like Crowley still believes there's a system. He just thinks that he's uniquely privileged to figure out the system or something. Yeah. Yeah. And he was still a pro, you know, he was, he's important in bringing about, you know, where we are now, but he was still of an older generation and trapped in the foundings of that, you know? Exactly. Um, And in fact, just as a, as a jumping off point, uh, for coming back around to some of your artistic creation, I've I've been thinking that I've always been a little bit more of a Crowleyan uh, than an Austin Osmond Spare kind of guy. Um, I recently picked up The Focus of Life by Spare um, and some other works on chaos magic just to kind of uh, get inside that world. But when I was more truly a practicing occultist, I did feel like I needed... 
I wanted these energies to be contained in some kind of system that I could make sense of. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, so, you know, I, I took up doing uh, lesser banishing of the pentagram every day and invoking once a week after I got good at that. And, you know, was even though at the time I was experimenting with drug use and psychedelics and, you know, generally being in my early 20s and living a very experimental life. I still felt like I needed this like disciplined structure and was never willing to wander too far off of like I needed to find an expert to attest to it before I did it um, yeah. in that kind of sense. What, what's your take on the tension between uh, Austin Osmond Spare and Alistair Crowley? Well, I think that's actually a really cool thing to bring up because I actually have had talks about this lately with a lot of people. Um, I have a friend that kind of went through the same background as me. And we kind of have a internal joke that's kind of like, ugh, chaos magic. Like, but it's kind of like, hey, like, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I think chaos magic in a lot of ways is kind of like the, not to sound cliched or anything, but it's kind of like the punk rock of occultism. It, so Spare was about, and Spare was, Spare was kind of like, I'm going to sound like an asshole, but Spare was kind of like the Iggy and the Stooges of Chaos Magic, <laughs> just because I've been listening to a lot of Stooges lately, you know, kind of the proto-punk. Like, Spare was like the foundation of that, but mm. he wasn't a chaos, Spare wasn't even really a chaos magician as we understand it now, you know, at all. He just kind of came up with the sigil stuff, and, you know, he had a background with Crowley and was involved in the AA. Right. He was, uh, he did some illustrations for the Equinox. And whatever happened at one point, he basically came to a point where he wasn't too keen on Crowley. Dropped out. A lot of, yeah, yeah a lot of people say it has attributions to Crowley being sexually inter uh, interested in him because hmm. apparently in his youth, Spare was a pretty striking looking guy. He had like bright red hair and he was a weirdo, you know, but, uh, but he sort of dropped out of that. And uh, from Spare, it basically, you know, Spare died in the 50s. And uh, from everything I've heard from people until probably the end of the 80s or the 90s, you could get giant Spare paintings for very cheap. I That's how, like, all the people in, like, the, the Coil guys and Genesis Peel Ridge, all those people, you could get... I, I heard at one point you could get, like big old spare paintings pastels for like a hundred pounds you know yeah and that stuff's thousands and thousands of dollars now but it was sort of on the wayside and people like kenneth grant kind of uh you know kept that in people's consciousness and then in the 80s and the post-industrial stuff some of those people kind of champion that and it became kind of a figure but the writings that came out of it you know, they, they have their own slants and biases, like the Topi stuff or the IoT stuff, you know. And then it kind of becomes, when you bring about an absolute freedom, it's not always, I think it's appealing to people like me when I was younger because, you know, you don't have these restrictions and rules. But at the same time, restrictions and rules, especially if you're, a, you know, a neophyte. It's not a bad thing always. It gives you some protection and some grounding. And I almost feel like some of those grounds are maybe better experienced by more experienced people, you know? It's it's a bit too open field. There's a lot that can go wrong. 
<laughs> and and I think you can find that in lots of different traditions that there's there's a play between structure and freedom. And of course, you know, too structured and too too limited becomes a problem, but uh also too wild, anything goes, do whatever you want, mix it up however you want. Uh people can get lost and people can get hurt in that kind of zone, especially when we're talking about occult practice. Um, yeah. I think it's I think it's good to build up not to read a lot and then experiment with what you're interested in and go from there. But you know, it's, it's different. People are different. You know, there's not one system that works for everyone, you know? Exactly. And maybe not even for the same person over time, right? Like you were sort of alluding to uh chaos magic, having a place at one time. And now you and your friend being like, uh, that shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not, and I want to say too, I have no looking down on it. I'm not putting it down. It's just some of the experiences I had with it. And, you know, it's quite possibly in a lot of ways my own fault, but I had some experiences where I'm like, oh man, fuck, you know? So, and I feel like, you know, all your experiences you go through, whether it's, you know, spiritual practice or whatever, or musical taste, you know? I don't mm. look back and resent any of it, even if I don't listen to it or adhere to it anymore. Exactly. It had its place in my life and I wouldn't be the person I am without it. As far as Spare goes too, his writing, it it has its, you know, it's good and it's fine. But uh, as far as my continued influence from him, it's definitely more based on his artwork and his life than... Uh, than his writing. His writing's fine and it's interesting to me. His artwork, I think, is incredible. I think he's one of the, as far as like how realistic and great he could paint on top of being an occultist, like I think he's easily one of the best artists that's lived in hundreds of years. His line work is exceptional. I've had uh, people who aren't even into, you know, occultism or stuff and see his art that are, you know, very smart into art and they're very you know impressed generally like it's he's it, you can't really say he's not a good artist he's uh he's a very gifted artist well i'll i'll pursue his paintings then um as i think through also the some of his philosophical points and such you know i wanted to bring up i i was looking at um another release from you which was the 2019 case studies and speaking of art did you you did the cover art for that is that true yeah. Yeah. I did the art for that. I, for a while I had been doing a lot of, uh, pen and ink stuff. And, uh, cause I had, I had got started using those fine tip pens and just really making very stark contrast up black and white. And I really liked some of the results, but I hadn't been doing it for a while cause I had, uh, been doing painting more. Uh, I've started with doing watercolors for a spat and then uh, going to acrylic, but I kind of, I just wanted to do a few pen and ink drawings and I did that one and I was really happy with it. And Having seen some of your early forays into drawing years and years and years ago, more than a decade ago, um, your, your work has become more and more um, clear and kind of visually powerful. And I really enjoyed looking at that piece today. Um, I noticed that in the liner notes for 2019 case studies, you say field recordings of ritual magic. Uh, what can you tell us about that? 
it's it's kind of a joke but not really <laughs> as far as basically i was recording a lot at that point but i didn't have a cohesive i'm making an album i'm making an ep but i was doing a lot of work and as i wrapped it up i was well what is this or what's the intent and then i sort of made the concepts as i was going with mm -hmm. most of it um the last track was was more uh, in line with the linear notes and actually what it purported to be but uh but the other stuff is you know half in fun but half in seriousness too like uh a meditative course in Hafler trio guru yoga mm. that's actually uh that's actually I had two recordings of a live performance I did. One was an audience and one was a soundboard. And it was uh, more physical in nature because, but I had a, one of those chord organs. I don't, have you ever seen those? They're small and they have like a little fan in them. Do you yeah, have, I, one? I have one? I have one sitting right back here. Uh, I'm actually about to do a record with it, I think. it's It's been on some of my Sun Thief stuff in the past, but it's not been like the center of attention i think i'm going to do a record that's like every single track is about the chord organ those things are soon. great but the one yeah. i have is the one i have isn't great it's basically it's basically fucked and uh so i was playing a noise festival and i figured i'll use this and like i even put a contact mic on the motor halfway into the set whatever possessed me decide to live up to being noisier and less ambient i got up and i just started jumping on it and the keys were flying off and i had a contact mic taped to it and so keys were flying everywhere and people were sitting like two feet for me and keys start flying at them and it was a really mellow set until then these two recordings i basically processed them but i was doing a lot of like the it felt like tape music to me mm -hmm. because i had this uh, i had the audience sounds like the people talking at the beginning and i was doing more like tape i was using a computer but more tape treatment you know like slowing down speeding up layering and stuff and i liked how it turned out and it kind of made me feel like i was listening to the Hafler trio so you titled it as uh, Guru Yoga, so you were uh, astrally attaching yourself to the Hafler Trio. Yeah, it was it was divine hero worship. So hopefully he doesn't see that and get mad at me. <laughs> but I, I well, see he I see he finally put stuff up on Bandcamp, which is weird because he was always super against digital stuff. But he just did an album, so 
Hmm. I'm going to go buy that after we do this interview. And then hopefully he, if he ever finds out about this, he'll forgive me over <laughs> my 13 euros. Well, you know, I, I think one thing about guru yoga, and if, if you choose to be a guru or someone labels you as a guru, is you can't help who's doing guru yoga to you at any given time, right? You just have to give freely. Right, right. And that's that's part of what the musical experience is. But you hit on a word that came up in the last episode of this podcast, which isn't even yet posted, um, which is the word possession. And one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, in, in my work creating ambient and industrial and noise music, uh, in my philosophical and mystical writings, um, my yoga practice and, and meditative practice, there is this element of of trance or possession that certainly plays a role where you give yourself over to energies that seem to stream or pour into you. And I just love to hear if there's any resonance of my description there in how you work. And if you have any kind of structures or rituals or superstitions about how you get into that zone uh, for, for creation or performance. Yeah. Yeah. Actually that's, that's all wonderful. Um, that's all a big part of what I do. And it has been for a long time, but it's gone through different phases and structurings. Uh, sometimes I just know how, you know, I can, you can start playing a drone on something and you can get yourself there. As far as using it uh, in recording now, uh, sometimes it's not even recorded. It's just used for ritual purposes. Um, I gave a talk in Florida last year in Orlando at a Black Lotus cult uh, event. They do them every so often. Uh, they try to every year. Uh, the one before was in Chicago, but there were different people giving talks on cult matters. And uh, I did a talk on like basically the use of, of like noise and experimental music in uh, ritual magic. And I had been indulging in a uh, practice using magical squares, which feature pretty prominently in, uh, in the book of Abramelin, like Crowley used for the, it, when he had his house in Bolskatine the, by the Loch Ness. The Holy Guardian Angel. Where he summoned the Loch Ness monster. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but yeah, where he, <laughs> uh, where he did that invocation. How I started using those, though, without going too into it, I had been reading some uh, papers written by uh, Michael Berdio, uh, an old correspondence course he wrote starting in the 60s, uh, The Monastery of the Seven Rays. And it, was, uh, it started in the 1960s, and it was a four-year course, each year's uh, 16 months versus lessons. They would advertise in occult magazines and uh, like paranormal magazines, and they had an address, and you wrote it for more information. And you would basically pay expenses, and they would send you these couple-page lessons, and you would work over those for like a week and then write a report on it. Uh, they've never been available in book form. A person in Italy is starting to put them out in books. The first one's out right now, but all four should eventually be out. But yeah, uh, Michael Berdio, he's an occultist that I kind of became aware. Well, first subconsciously, but not knowing it was him. I, when I was uh, young, I read uh, one of those satanic panic books written by an ex-Satanist. 
And there was actually a chapter where he talked about his, I'm sure, uh, embellished, but his account of studying, hanging out with Michael Berdio in the 70s. But, and apparently this was a fringe guy who tra- traveled through all these occult circles and then became a fundamentalist and gives lectures on why the occult's bad. But later on, uh, through the writings of Kenneth Grant, I, the name popped up in some interest. Um, but he's been writing stuff forever uh, since the 60s and on a wide range of topics. He has, but he's most known for this book, uh, the Voodoo Gnostic Workbook. And it's this massive, probably six, 700 page book. I got one right here. I've never, never cracked that, never worked with anything in his tradition. So I was just selfishly, but also for listeners wanting to hear a little more about what he's about. And I, I want to return to your answer about what you specifically do relative to your, to your art, but this is fascinating to hear about him also. Yeah. Well, he, uh, his stuff is, is interesting to me because there's a lot of polarization on it. Which is similar to Grant, too. There's like a lot of traditional Crowleyites who are like, Kenneth Grant's fucking crazy. And I think it's pretty, pretty interesting. Is Grant, he doesn't consider himself a chaos magician, does he? No. He's kind of, he's before that, then he's doing his own thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Grant's, uh, Grant passed away a while ago, but he sort of, he sort of did his own thing, which seemed to me just my perception like, uh, more liberal Crowley with a lot of kind of like dark Lovecraftian undertones to it. Mm. Um, and he was really big on exploring the night side of the tree of life. But, uh, but yeah, I think he was influential. It's kind of like spe- the step after spare, you know, influential to all the chaos magic stuff, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't in the same canon. I don't quite think, but I don't think Michael Berdio is really uh, a chaos magician either. You know, he's just, he has a wide range of papers and stuff. And basically any of them, I feel like someone could pick up that book and, you know, flip to a random page a few times and find some interesting stuff. I don't see it as, I see it as like guideposts. He presents it as a system, right? And you said guideposts. Yeah. Well, I think people latch on to and make systems out of stuff and it's a system to an extent, but it's very much his system when you're Mm -hmm. reading it, you know, his, it's his experiences and you can use aspects of them, but you're going to probably get something a little different maybe because you're a different person. You know, I was reading a paper that dealt with some magical squares and gave some attributes to it. And I put some thought into that. And basically I was over the course of a week rereading this like once or twice a day and reflecting on it. And I figured since I'm doing music anyways, why not enhance that reflection by using this in music? So I took the actual magical squares from that, uh, those set of papers I was working, and I basically wrote them out, and I would invoke them, and then I would make music. Mm-hmm. And I've gone about that different ways. I've gone about it where it's just instinctual. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone about it where I've, I like to use dice. It's like making creativity, magic, and music into Dungeons and Dragons. So you're using D&D dice? Uh, kind, well, not really. I mean, uh-huh. I have a, a handful of six-sided dice I use because last year when I was in Florida, one of the other speakers had this set of dice that he made himself that he was selling sets of. And uh, they correspond to 
uh, different loa, like uh, voodoo spirits. Basically, there's one for each four corners of the element, and then there's one for the gatekeeper. And uh, these dice he made, he like put elemental attributions inside the resin mold, like the one of Gayday, the death spirit has like dirt from 10 different cemeteries inside the dice. So it's just something that makes it more. Wow. And I think to, to get intentional about contacting entities uh, through sound is probably when I think about it, one of the oldest um, religious practices that exists. Like I imagine as long as there've been humans, we've been sitting around a fire or in a cavern uh, using our voices together or whatever uh, implements or, or um, rudimentary instruments are available uh, for acts of, of summoning and, and trance work and all of that. Um, up until the, the COVID pandemic, I was teaching a weekly um, chanting group and we would get together in a large space between eight and 15, 20 people. And we would work with like old ancient like Vedic invocations or every once in a while, some like Kabbalistic stuff or some like Greek uh, kind of esoterica, lots of working with vowel sounds and that sort of thing. And um, one thing that you can really viscerally feel when you're working with your own voice is that without even changing key, without changing texture that much, just changing the words of the entities that you're working with, or the predominance of certain vowel sounds leaves totally different residues in the body. Like you experience completely different colors and swirls and patterns and vibrations uh, just from, you know, the, the Vedic chants are all basically in the same key, uh, but they work with radically different types of entities. And you can just feel it very immediately in your own flesh, um, the power of sound to connect you to those forces.
you know, when you work with the, the names of, of different entities or some of those really old chants, whether they be Vedic or in the, uh, the Greek magical papyri or in the Egyptian text or whatever, it becomes clear that even just the names or the vowel sounds associated with certain entities have incredible resonance. And so when you're talking about working with magical squares and um, dice that have been uh, ritually prepared um, and then bringing that space into your music, I just, I, I can like, that's something that's viscerally real to me. Uh, I believe in that. And I think it produces a particular kind of work. Yeah. Well, I think it makes it deeply personal too, because, you know, I've not to, not to knock anyone. And I love like ridiculous heavy metal music and even some black metal still, even though it's harder and harder, but, <laughs> but you know, like some of those genres have very like, you know, satanic black magic, you know, images. And it's like an image, which is cool. Like that's their shtick, but I just figure like the way I can make the music I'm making the most personal is to inject the stuff I'm interested in into it. And I've even, I've even had a few people that I know that, that are influential to me tell me like, well, if you're into this stuff and your name and song titles after it, you might as well use a process to make it that reflects them. That's like, and, and to me, it's one of those things where the music that you make um, through these processes can be apprehended just on the basis of experimental music and people can get into it that way. But, but for me having this a little bit of you behind the curtain that you've offered today and knowing you as an individual just adds this whole like stratum of intensity to the sounds, which are already, like I'm saying, without knowing any of the theory and any of the practice behind it, you can still, they're aesthetically powerful in and of themselves. I don't want to take away from that. Uh, but being able to relate to your own practice just adds this dimension of, of weirdness and intensity that I, I really appreciate. Um, I remember we had a conversation about like picking a practice and sticking to it as being an important uh, dimension of an artist's work and, and of the occult or spiritual life. And I was thinking that from the outside, it seems like some of the artists that I know we share an appreciation for haven't done such a good job of that. Like, uh, <laughs> and not necessarily, not necessarily in a bad way, right? But like, uh, you right. know, Coil has their solar phase and their lunar phase. And I, I don't know if they named kind of where they were going after that with like Black Antlers and uh, the Ape of Naples, if that phase had, had a name. you know, or, or Some of that's pretty solar too, I feel like. I agree. There's like a weird, I, I couldn't find it today. I was looking for it, but I feel like John Balance said that that final era was like a, like a melding of the solar and the lunar. Which, yeah, if that's the case, that's, you know, all the stuff they talked about and set out to do. It sounds like that's where they should have went. So mm -hmm. I guess it's fortunate for that for, well, probably everyone, but that they ended on that note, you know? Yeah. And they were really good about really throwing that stuff in your face, which was influential to me because I didn't, you know, at a certain point, I didn't know what the fuck they were talking about, but I'm like, this sounds cool. I'm going to check it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a doorpost for a lot of people, you know, it absolutely was for me. And ultimately, you know, I, I remember being a teenager 
um, and like going to Borders or Barnes and Noble with my Christian parents and then like peeling off to the side to read the book of the law or the book of lies in the corner of the like shitty little bookstore um, was really important. And then once I had my own job, my own money and started buying that stuff up, um, you know, and, and I think also hear about current 93 who's, you know, started as Thelemites and then kind of pessimistic Buddhists and then Gnostic Christians and who even knows where David Tibet's at right now, even though it's kind of awesome. Um, but I was just thinking about like, you know, remembering this conversation with you where we talked about the importance of kind of digging into a path. And uh, one of my teachers in the tantric yoga tradition says that, you know, if your intent is to build a well, you can't stop digging when you get six feet down and the ground gets harder, right? You can't just keep going and digging a bunch of six foot holes. You got to go all the way to get to the water. Right. Um, and, I, and I was just wondering if that still resonates with you because I'm kind of a natural eclectic. Like I like to borrow from things. I like to engage a lot of different things. But I've also found that to be true, that you have to have something that's your basis that you like the way that you work. Uh, just briefly, when you're talking about bands and their different phases, I think for in that context, it can work beautifully because it can keep people from growing stagnant in their artistic uh, endeavors. And uh, I think I think the main thing as far as sticking to something, I almost feel like it's most important in the preliminary phases if you can find the thing that resonates with you and go with it to a certain point, and then you start learning your own stuff and adding your personal experiences, and then you may branch out from there and you may pull in other stuff, you know, you can be a Buddhist, but you're like, Oh, cabal is kind of cool. And like start integrating a little of that. And I think as long as I think the problem comes when people get interested in stuff and they're like, Oh, Crowley, and they get disenfranchised with it after like a year or two, and they only delve so far, and then they go to chaos magic or Buddhism. Or I think if you don't hit, you have to hit a certain point with whatever you're working on to get the battery going to propel you. You have to hit a certain point or find the mark where you start being receptive to things. And it's probably easier for some people, you know. Some people are more intuitive to it, you know, because we're all, we're all different and born under uh, different astrological pretexts or what may have you. And so we do have to find something that works for us. And there is a pragmatic element to that. And um, one of the, the aims of this podcast is to try to open doors for people and uh, provide kind of like we were talking about in that old Internet age, like some of these rabbit holes and thresholds and uh, gates and doors and that sort of thing. Um, and so my intention is that every single podcast uh, ends with a, a section that is like a suggested practice. What's a, what's a practice that feels relevant to this conversation that even a, a total noob neophyte uh, could do at home relevant to, uh, to sound and ritual? Hmm. No, that's, that's good. Um, I think setting is a good thing. The, the, like the drama of it, if you can, if your setting allows, you know, have a dark room, if you can burn a bunch of candles, if incense doesn't destroy your lungs, like it does mine, make some fifth waths of incense. Be, you know, if you can go full sun, if you can, 
you know, the, yeah. the drone ban. You know, yeah. if you can put on a black robe, <laughs> blast out incense and burn a bunch of candles in your room, like, you, but you can go much wider than that, you know? Sure. But yeah. that's like, that's turning it to 10. And if you want to do that, but like any element of that, I think is good to start. And then just set up what you're going to use. If you're, if you want to do something meditative, I mean, it can be as simple as you sit down and meditate for a while and then just start playing something repetitive and further meditate while you're doing it. And then you can develop criteria that alters that if you want. Mm. Um, Like we mentioned, you know, if you want to invoke a magic square, you can, uh, you can take an entity name or you can take intent. If you, if you want to play it like a sigil, you could take intent and just look up how to make a magical square out of a word or a set of words. You can do that on, on Google. Yeah. I'll include a a link to an article about magical squares in the, uh, in the show notes for, for listeners. That's a great suggestion. Yeah. And you can, it's very versatile. You can do whatever you can invoke that you can, you can use dice, uh, when I use dice, a lot of times I do yes or no, or positive or negative, and assign it to positive or negative values on the dice. I've done stuff where I've invoked a magic square, and then when I'm playing the synth, I'll roll the dice, and that tells me if I move the parameters up or down, or if I move to the next parameter, mm. and I've used that for a way of altering the sound. So, I mean, it's it's pretty open-ended. Um, yeah. Absolutely. But you can start basic with it, mess around and see what you come up with or make up your own system, you know, around it. I might include something in there about just trying to observe the sounds in your surrounding and then responding to those with sounds you generate somehow. That's something I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that's interesting to me. And I'm sure with with meditation you're you're very susceptible to this but i find it really interesting not to get too far off but when you're accumulating these states um when sound the way you intake sound starts dramatically altering like i'll have it's not like tinnitus like it's severe like uh uncomfortable well i'll have times where it's just there's like a high frequency hum that come that folds out and I'm, I'm sure you've had different stuff with that too in most of the world mystical and occult traditions that at certain states um you do hear sounds that the ear almost seems to be generating or or tuning into mm-hmm. um but even a more everyday example of this is is even just a little drop like a little dose of good meditation it, it just causes your sense faculties to turn up on some level, it's like yeah. the the ambient sound of the room will go up in the first five minutes if you're doing it right, like that that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Other um, artifacts and features start to display after that. You know, I'm I'm a big practicer of, as I mentioned before, chanting and also breathing exercises. And so for me, um, working with the techniques of like overtone singing and throat singing, or even just sustaining a note. Or one syllable chant for like as long as possible and allowing the voice to waver or be a little dissonant. Like it's not about singing. It's about like just emitting tones. Mm-hmm. Um, 
can be so powerful and play it, it really plays into everything you're saying where where you almost have a sense through your ears of kind of like the electricity or the vital fluid around you right it just starts to vibrate um because yeah. because of working with the ears and working with sound yeah yeah it's just interesting how that just how easy it is to reconfigure that stuff and that's what i think has held my interest in this stuff is you know i know people who are skeptical because they've only read books and stuff and they haven't done anything or like oh this sounds like bullshit but at the most basic level like there's what you were just talking about and what i asked you about like that's pretty discernible to anyone if they actually do it so from where you go from there you know is up to you but and that's that's one of the big messages i'm trying to come out with which is like you can't just observe this stuff you can't just think about it you need to step into the ring you need to try it right and uh you know and not in an irresponsible way but just like engage the practices get get out there yeah well, and, you know, you can decide how far you want to go or which way you want to go, you know. You don't have to be an Aleister Crowley that tries to change the evolution of mankind. Like, that sounds pretty stressful. By way of conclusion, Charlie and I want to encourage you to interact with ambient noise as meditation. Listening is a deeply therapeutic act in all of its incarnations, but based on today's episode, I want to highlight this experimental way of listening. Just as lying on your back or standing on your head in an unexpected place causes the world to be viewed upside down, Changing the ratio of attention from the eyes to the ears and widening the spectrum of your hearing can literally transform the world. Not only is it hard these days to listen to loved ones, or as your therapist might say, to listen to yourself, 
but it seems like it is becoming harder to hear the sound world, the environmental textures of sound. So many of us are used to checking out of the road noise and all the sound pollution that surrounds us on a daily basis. Rather than just passively observe sounds, we will immerse ourselves in and engage in shaping the sounds around us. What follows is not just sound meditation, but meditation on emitting sounds into the environment. You may wish to record the results. First, as Charlie said, let's attend to set and setting. Pick a place where you feel comfortable and relatively undisturbed. Socially quiet, but not necessarily sonically quiet. If you are inclined to use incense to excite and focus the nose and set the atmosphere, feel free to do that. Alter the lighting if you wish, so that your eyes are clued in to your ritual purpose. Don comfortable garments, or your black metal robes if you have them. If you have a preferred musical instrument, sit it down nearby. Then sit yourself down and clear the slate of the day. Widen all of your sense perceptions and welcome sensations in, blocking nothing out. Reach out through your ears. Try not to just scan for highlights of sounds. Not simply looking for vehicles passing by, discernible voices next door, chirps of cell phones or car doors. Try to make the ears more pliable, more porous, more welcoming of the background of sound. Is there a sensation like the volume going up? What sounds surround you? Which ones are interesting? Clicks, whirs, motors, winds, chimes, buzzes. Do these resonances have textures, qualities, physical locations in the room or world around you? Do any of them cause an emotional reaction, such as the ticking of a clock or the sound of an alarm? Just welcome the sounds in your space. Now I'm going to play some additional noises into your speakers to add some texture from this end.
It is possible for us to leave off here and just stay with active listening as an exercise. But I want to encourage you to go one step further by interacting with sounds. The most simple way is to begin tapping something nearby, your cheekbone or your leg, for example, the table or the drum or the guitar, as a response to the sounds surrounding you. So keep listening, be intuitive. Don't try to be musical, don't try to perform, don't try to not be musical either. As the sounds continue around you, reach your body's space and ability to make sound out into the environment and be an actor within the space. Humming, tapping, drumming. Striking. Noodling. Thrumming. Don't solo. Don't conduct. Just reach your ability to generate anything out into the space tentatively, as if exploring brand new terrain. Cautiously, as if your very presence were coaxing music from the ambient surround, rather than just from your voice or instrument. Continue at will, at your own pace, without judgment, and enjoy.